What was fascinating to us is that about a third of the money came right away from our own customers. So uh, when we started at Seed Invest, one of the things that they encouraged us to do was uh, let our own customers know that we're raising funds um, because some of them may be interested in supporting you. And it proved to be absolutely accurate because um, we raised, I believe, two hundred thirty. from a couple of Evelo customers. Welcome to the 2X e-commerce podcast show, where we interview founders of fast-growing seven- and eight-figure e-commerce businesses and e-commerce experts. They'll tell their stories, share how they 2X'd their businesses, and inspire you to take action in your own online retail business today. And now, here he is, the man in the mix, Kunle Campbell. Hi guys, as you're probably aware, I love the concept of selling direct to consumer and actually owning a brand in general as against selling a range of other manufacturers' brands. I especially love when a direct to consumer product's business goes against the grain by being destructive in an entire industry. And so my guest today has done exactly that with his electric bike company. He co-founded with his brother called eVelo. It's a customer obsessed and at the same time innovative electric bike company. On this episode, Boris shares how his company recently raised $750,000 from actual investors on a website called seedinvest.com and not from Kickstarter or Indiegogo. He explains and breaks down their sales funnel, which is quite interesting. He also shares why content marketing is synonymous to education, especially when you're selling high ticket products. And he also shares how they've used their customers as affiliates in a very clever ambassador referral program they developed and finally he's his view on what direct to consumer businesses really entail he in his view he he feels they should be 50 percent innovative from an operational standpoint and 50 percent customer experience um so before we dig into this interview i'd like you to hear a message from our sponsors salsify As an online retailer or supplier, you're well aware that accurate product content drives more sales. However, as your store starts to scale, the harsh reality is that maintaining product description content becomes more and more of a challenge to e-commerce teams. This is a problem Salsify solves. Salsify is a SaaS-based product content management platform built specifically for online retailers and brand owners. I recently took Salsify on a test drive, and here are the glaring advantages e-tailers stand to gain. First, your entire product catalog can be accessed by any department in a centralized hub. Then there's a workflow setup that ensures no fields go amiss when product data is published to multiple channels such as Amazon, your Google Merchants account, or just directly to your e-commerce store. Salsify tells you when it spots missing critical data across your product catalog. 
It's a flexible and robust product management platform. I recommend if your store and brand products catalog changes often and if you publish to numerous channels. As a 2x e-commerce listener, you can get to trial Salsify for free at salsify.com forward slash 2x. That is S-A-L-S-I-F-Y dot com forward slash 2x. I'll leave more details and a link on this episode's show notes. Now back to my interview with Boris Modkovic, who's a co-founder and CEO of Evelo Electric Bike Company. Hi, Boris. Could you take um, a minute or two to introduce yourself to, to, to listeners? Absolutely. Uh, my name is Boris Mordkovic, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of a five-year-old electric bike company based out of New York called Evelo. What we do is we, we produce, manufacture, and distribute directly to consumer uh, really phenomenal electric bikes. Okay. By phenomenal, I actually picked up on a press release which which claims you you guys you know produce the best electric bikes. Um, why um, why do you claim to to the innovation um, Evelo has as compared to other electric bikes? Mm-hmm. You know that, that's actually a really great question because the way that we look at it is it's. It's a 50-50 sort of formula. So uh, 50% of it is the technology itself behind the bikes Mm -hmm. and what we do in order to make them a bit more powerful, a bit lighter, a bit um, to give them a little bit more range than the competition. But the other 50% is really how we do business. And it ranges from things like being able to, instead of purchasing the bike outright, people can finance it for a year or more. People have a free uh, seven-day at-home trial. We offer seven days a week support, things like that. Okay. So do you, do you work on like a distribution, you know, um, do, do you have a distribution channel? Do, do you have a distribution model or um, are you more decentralized? We are fairly centralized. So traditionally in the bike industry, uh, the way that most bike manufacturers operate is they will distribute bikes either directly through local independent bike shops or the big box retailers. However, because myself and my co-founder, we actually come from a very different background. We come from primarily an e-commerce background. Uh, when we entered this industry, we didn't really have the traditional ways of doing business uh, sort of philosophy set in. So we started doing a direct-to-consumer, con- uh, pretty much entirely online business model, which for the bike industry hasn't really been done before. Interesting, interesting. And so, so does that mean every single sale comes through the, the website evelo.com correct correct so every uh, every sale does come directly through us and that's one of the reasons um, that that also allows us to really control the entire user experience from when they find out about the brand to uh, how we treat them a year or two down the line and what sort of support we're able to offer. Okay. 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 I'm just looking at your Alexa ranking on there and it's about 447 
thousand and mm-hmm. uh, just looking at similar web this is not entirely correct mm-hmm. it says that um, you, you guys have like a monthly estimated desktop visit about 20,000 about 20,000 visits per month um, based on the stats on the outside is that is that near to accurate in terms of yeah no that that, that, that is quite correct. Uh, to, to be completely honest, we, we typically don't really look too much at things like um, Alexa rankings ourselves. Okay. Uh, typically, the sort of metrics that we you know pay very close attention to is not even the visitor count itself, but things like revenue per visitor that we generate, uh, conversion rates, uh, things that really um, kind of add to the bottom line, essentially. Absolutely. Speaking of the bottom line, um, what kind of revenue did you generate in 2015? In 2015, we did around $2 million. And then uh, this year, we're on track to actually double that and go for a little over $4 million. That's brilliant. Um, so when did you, we're going to talk about um, how you raised capital and you know the avenues you used. Um, but would, when, when did that happen? When, mm-hmm. when did you raise capital and um, has... And, well, the revenue you, you you generated last year, um, does it have anything to do with um, with the seed investment you got, or well, not the seed investment, with the mm-hmm. additional investment you got, or was that um, more or less from your organic growth? Sure. So to, to answer your question, we we raised the funds uh, towards the end of last year. Mm-hmm. However, the kind of the context for this is. Um, my co-founder and I, we we had another company that we sold about five years ago, and we used the proceeds from that company to essentially start Evelo. So we started Evelo for about uh, uh, for for a fairly small amount, around a hundred thousand okay. dollars, and we were able to grow it uh, for three years, uh, pretty much con- completely organically, just relying mm-hmm. on revenues and profits that were coming in. Mm-hmm. So it went from essentially zero to about two million in revenue before we raised a single dollar from investors. And that was very intentional. When you say intentional, was that more, more or less a proof of concept and a test of the market? So it was a couple of reasons. Uh, part of it was our own philosophy in the sense that we did not want to take on money from outsiders until we were confident that we would be able to deliver a real return to them. Uh, and second of all, you know, with the physical goods businesses, the way that uh, you attract funds uh, and the sort of interest that you're able to generate, it's quite different than from a traditional, let's say, Silicon Valley software business, where uh, often you're able to raise huge amounts of money just based on the idea. With the physical goods businesses, investors are typically a lot more careful. They are more conservative, and they do want to see actual uh, revenue numbers before giving you a dollar. That's a very, very good point. Okay, let's talk about your co-founder. He's your brother, mm-hmm. right? And Correct. Yevgeny. Um, mm-hmm. Is he, because uh, I, I read, I picked up on, on a press release again, um, in regards to how you started, you know, Ebello. So is he the engineer? Is, is he, does he, you know, is, is it the engineer? How, how, how does it work? How does, um, how do you guys share um your um how do you share running the business between yourselves what do you do and what what, what hat does he wear 
Sure. So our roles over the last three, four years did evolve quite a bit. Okay. When we first started, I mean, essentially we were, you know, just between the two of us for the first year or so, literally we would do everything from uh, the strategic ideas and implementation to answering customers' questions and driving bikes around and just really figuring figuring out every aspect of the business. Uh, even from the very early on, the way that we would essentially divide the responsibilities loosely would be where Evgeny was responsible for product development, for overall post-sale customer experience. So basically everything that would have happened after a customer purchased the bike, uh, how they service it, how would it get delivered to them, just every everything that goes into that. Mm. Whereas my responsibility in the beginning was primarily sales, our brand, uh, brand design and development, and initially uh, the team building, essentially hiring the first uh, couple of people that came on board and bringing them up to speed. Interesting. Today... Um, just today, today it's it's still it's still similar. the the main The main difference is that we have a, a team of about uh, eleven people right now. Mm-hmm. So our roles, the overall direction is still similar, but the sort of things that we do on a day to day basis uh, kind of shifted. Okay, okay, quite interesting. Okay, so let's track back to my initial question in terms of you know, um, what makes Avello the best okay you, you said mm-hmm. it was 50% technical and um, 50% operational and just the way you treat your customers the options they have um, from a finance standpoint um, the seven day no return um, the seven day testing period and you know a few other perks they get you know which which just distinguishes the their experience from what they get traditionally um, mm-hmm. So I can see on your website, you've got like five core, correct me if I'm wrong, please, um, five core um, bike types. Um, so you've got the Aris, Aura, Luna, Orion, and what I found really interesting, I was just having a conversation with um, the chaps mm-hmm. before, the Omni Will, which I think is quite revolutionary. So, yeah, could you sort of break down um, why, you know, Evelo is um, – you know, potentially disruptive and, you know, um, not just um, from a market standpoint in the way you do business, but um, also from, from your offering. Absolutely. So let's talk about, for example, the Omni Wheel uh, for a minute since this is something that we released about a year ago and it has been quite disruptive and quite uh, interesting from the marketing, from the market uh, reception. So, Traditionally, with electric bikes, uh, one of the challenges is that a good electric bike typically costs somewhere between, let's say, two to three thousand uh, dollars, which for a lot of people is out of reach. So instead of trying to compromise, for example, on the components or on the technology in order to do uh, a cheaper bike, uh, the direction that we've gone is we released the Omni Wheel, which is essentially an all-in-one front wheel that contains the battery, motor, controller, all of the electronics in one easy package. And essentially what it allows people to do is convert a regular traditional bike into electric within about 10 minutes. All they have to do 
is take out the front wheel from their existing bike, put the Omni wheel uh, in its place, set up the display and the handlebars, and they're done. At that point, uh, their bike becomes electric. So does it make use of kinetics, you know, kinetics engineering or... <laughs> so, so it's, it's actually so very very simple. There are there are two options. Uh, you can a user can either use a very simple throttle, where they press a button and the motor kicks in and makes it easier to pedal and easier to go uphill, uh, and or the other option is uh, they simply start pedaling, and as soon as the wheel senses resistance, so to speak, it will give the user a boost. So again, the the feeling that people get when they ride the Omni wheel or our electric bikes is almost as if uh, somebody's giving them a gentle push from the back, and it makes it so when when they climb uphill or climb a steep hill, it feels like they're going on flat ground. Okay. If they're going on flat ground, it feels like they're going faster, so they can commute faster. Okay. okay so so of all your your brands, um, which which has been which has proved the, the most popular? So right now our core business is still the complete electric bikes uh but the omni wheel is starting to be more and more popular uh, because of its lower price point and its appeal to mm, a, a different demographic so to speak a younger demographic okay i was i was on your linkedin profile and prior to to the call as i always am um on mm-hmm. guest on profile you did um work or you were you were kiva Fellow Kiver is a microfinance um, platform. For those of you who don't know, um, Kiver listening, could you could you just tell us a bit? Give us a bit of your background prior, because you said you you were you actually founded a business prior and you know use the proceeds to start Velo. So how did you both um, you know what 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 what's your background? Sure, sure. So uh, both Evgeny and I, uh, we actually had a couple of companies that we started, grew, and eventually sold together. Um, however. Since you mentioned Kiva, it's uh, Kiva was in some way responsible for Evelo upbringing as well because Kiva, as as you mentioned, is a person-to-person microfinance platform. Uh, essentially, it allows people to lend money to entrepreneurs in the developing world. One of the fellows from Kiva, he actually went on to start another company, another startup that I joined right before Evelo called Turo. And Turo is essentially a person-to-person car sharing company that would allow people to rent out their car to other people in their neighborhood by the hour, by the day. Mm-hmm. And working at Turo was actually an, a really interesting experience because it showed uh, very clearly how the relationship that people have uh, with vehicles, how that whole culture is starting to change in the U.S., where, let's say, in the past, um, a couple of decades ago, a car was viewed as a status symbol, as, uh, you know, freedom and things of that sort. But right now, people see owning a car as a hassle, as a huge expense, and they are actively looking for ways to either downside for, downsize from their car or use it less. So that was what essentially led to an electric bikes, because electric bikes represent a very real and very uh, viable alternative to to car ownership. 
Okay. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Now let's talk about the you know your your most recent um, you know round of funding, which was on Seed Invest. Um, mm-hmm. First question. Um, I, first time I'm actually hearing about um, the website called Seed, Seed Invest. It reminds me of um, a site called Crowdcube in the UK. Mm-hmm. But my question is, um, why didn't you consider Kickstarter or Indiegogo, the traditional crowdfunding you know, platforms, which are quite mm-hmm. mainstream? It's a great question, and really for two reasons. Uh, so the first one was Kickstarter and Indiegogo is typically done to bring a particular product to market. It's usually when a company is very young, has no revenue, no uh, real product yet, and they just need that initial boost of capital in order to uh, start manufacturing. We were already past that point in a sense that we already had most of our product lines. We already had a product pipeline for the future that we could finance ourselves. Uh, but what we needed was kind of a funding not for manufacturing, but really for expansion, expansion of the team, uh, bigger marketing budget. So Kickstarter would not work for that. The other reason, you know, personally, I love Kickstarter and I love the projects that it has. At the same time, you know, Kickstarter is a little bit of a double-edged sword because some of the projects on Kickstarter, they have a track record of either being late uh, with manufacturing and late with their promises uh, or not delivering what they promised to their consumers at all. So we had a concern that by be, by being on Kickstarter, we would actually undermine the credibility that we've built up over the last three years as as a profitable growing business. And when we when you sell a $3,000 product that people expect to be able to get support and warranty for, for two, three years in the future, credibility is incredibly important. Absolutely. I do agree with you. I, um, I bought a set of headphones um, on Kickstarter. I financed it and you know, it's one of the... Um, people who, who supported it and it's six months delayed till today mm-hmm. due to the headphones. So yes, uh, I do agree with you. And um, yes, with regards to to also the price points is um, you know these the, the average order value here is about three thousand dollars. Where do you start in Kickstarter? You know, um, for what will be the starter package really? Um, also. Exactly. And, you know, what What a lot of companies do is they will uh, set the prices very close to cost, uh, cost of manufacturing. And that may be okay in order to essentially prove that you can manufacture a particular product, generate awareness. But it's it's very difficult to build a business around Kickstarter. I see what you mean. Um, yeah, I see what you mean. I... Um, I I know of a company um, who were, who who launched through Kickstarter, and they they managed to fulfill all their Kickstarter orders, but um, they're currently having manufacturing issues in terms of just you know bringing mm-hmm. the, the actual business to market being improved. Mm-hmm. So they're going to have to look for for additional finance to to make it happen. Exactly. Okay. All right. Um. So. I'm quite surprised about um, seedinvest.com because I've attended a couple of um, like capital raising or um, fundraising 
seminars which say the, the US market is not as mature as the UK market with regards to, to finance and raising capital. So I just want to understand how the how equity, the equity share looks like. You you managed to raise about seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, I believe. Correct. Um, from from Seed Invest. So so what what happens? What, how much equity did you give to investors, and how many investors are on there? And how do you you know sort of um, how do you work out ownership? Is and is yeah. Sure, sure. So again, to provide a little bit of context, uh, we decided to do seed invest as opposed to completely on our own, in part because uh, we. Didn't, we felt that we didn't necessarily had a lot of connections with investors when we set out to raise funds. Um, you know, we're, we're based out of New York where there are lots of startups, but again, it's not necessarily the Silicon Valley. And, and uh, from our perspective, we were just starting from square one. So Seed Invest offered an interesting opportunity where they would essentially introduce us to their network of investors, um, as well as provide us with the sort of coaching and support and logistical support that we felt we needed at that point. And what ended up happening was very interesting. So we raised $750,000 in exchange for a convertible note that will convert for about 15% of the company. So our valuation was $5 million. What was fascinating to us is that about a third of the money came right away from our own customers. So when we started at Seed Invest, one of the things that they encouraged us to do was uh, let our own customers know that we're raising funds um, because some of them may be interested in supporting you. And it proved to be absolutely accurate because... Um, we raised, I believe, $230,000 uh, from a couple of Evelo customers. That was a game changer for us because, you know, the hardest part with fundraising is really getting that in- initial buy-in mm-hmm. because everybody typically wants to sit on the fence until they see that other investors are getting involved. Mm-hmm. After the initial funding came in, uh, Seed Invest, uh, what was unique about it at that particular time is that in addition to introducing us to other investors, they also had their own fund where they also invested another $200,000 uh, in, into, into our round. And then they ended up introducing us to, to quite a few really great investors uh, through their own platform and through AngelList. Mm-hmm. Um, and that allowed us to raise the balance. Yeah, the remaining 300000 Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so from, from, from what I've, I've gathered so far, it seems like a private um, seed raising or capital raising um, platform rather than um, something that's as public as the Kickstarters and Indiegogos. Is that correct? Or um, do they really publicize what, um, what's an offer on their website? Uh, in, in a sense, they, they, they do publicize it. Uh, the, the general approach, I would say, is different because Kickstarter is focused on the product. Mm-hmm. Seed Invest is focused on the company. So it will essentially uh, reach out to their own investors and let them know that they can invest into a particular company, okay. uh, regardless of the product. Okay, okay, okay. So it's it's for for more sophisticated, you know, one um, class of, of investors. And I think Kickstarter, you know, it's for, for your, your you know your neighbor could you know could, could do it. You know, if, mm-hmm. 
there's no equity right okay that makes sense okay um so how do you intend spending the um the, the cash you've, you've raised uh, where where do you see um, the, the funds mm -hmm. actually going to to grow the business it's, 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 a, it's a great question and the, the reason it's a, it's um it's a good question is because when we raise the funds, uh, we wanted to be in a position that even before we get the investment money, uh, we wanted to be profitable and not necessarily need the money for survival of the company. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, we uh, even prior to the investor investment, we were profitable and able to cover all of our expenses and grow organically. So the main purpose of the funds that we raised was essentially twofold. So one, uh, we will be using it to fund further product development so that we can expand our product line and what we're able to offer to our customers. Uh, and second of all, uh, we wanted to be able to expand our marketing and client acquisition efforts in a sense that over the last three years, we developed a pretty good idea in terms of what works and what doesn't in terms of marketing, but we were always very constrained in terms of cash flow of being able to really push forward. Uh, so with the additional capital, we're able to add money into the channels that are very effective for us and really start growing the business at a much faster pace. Okay, so, so two areas, operational in terms of research and development for, for, for wider products and um, marketing to actually fuel traffic into the site that actually converts. You know, it's, it's all about conversions at the end of the day, as you alluded to earlier. Okay, um, just have a question, and mm -hmm. this is in relation to, to a book I'm writing, and it, it's just in regards to your perspective about the need for capital to grow you know, a company. Um, when in, in this product space we're, we're, we're in, um, and e-commerce and direct-to-consumer, um, when do you, in, in your opinion, when do you think um, capital is required? Some you know, businesses have flourished at the start, um, and others like yourselves you know, have gone on to, to show a proof of concept and you know, successfully raised capital. What's your philosophy on that? Is there a right or wrong? Or? Well, uh, there is definitely no right or wrong. But personally, uh, I think that I'm, a, I'm very conservative when it comes to accepting funds from others. And it, it's interesting to me because there is almost two different schools of thought uh, in a sense that if you look at the uh, on the West Coast and Silicon Valley and the typical startups, there, the focus is let's raise as much money as we can, and then we'll figure out how to how to generate revenue. And it works, and it works for for a lot of them. At the same time, if you look at more kind of e-commerce focused businesses, there's a great community that I'm a part of called ecommercefuel.com. That is a community for e-commerce owners, e-commerce store owners that make, uh, I believe, one million dollars in revenue per year or more. Mm -hmm. And the mindset that the people have there is completely different. Almost nobody raises money from the outsiders. Uh, the vast majority of people there grow their business organically. You know, for us, I think that 
we were able to benefit from the best of both worlds. Uh, we were able to build up the company with a very scrappy sort of mentality where there is not a lot of waste. Um, we're generally fairly efficient and mindful of how we spend money. Uh, but at the same time, we were incredibly lucky in order to be able to raise that round of financing because now uh, we can do things that we were not able to do previously or that would take us a lot longer um, otherwise. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What about international expansion? Do, do, you, do you currently only cater for the U.S. or North America, U.S. and Canada? So t today we're primarily focused on the U.S. and Canada, uh, simply because for us, um, I, I think that we still have another year or so to go before we can comfortably say that, okay, we have most of the stuff here figured out. Now we're ready to go into other markets. Do, do you reckon you'd need another round of funding to, say, um, set up shop in the U.K. or Europe? It depends on how quickly we want to do it. Uh, if we wanted to, let's say, set up a shop in a European country in about a year, then yes, I would say we would need to raise an additional round of funding. Not a huge one, but an additional one nevertheless in order to be able to pull that off. If we were patient and were willing to wait, let's say, three to four years, then I think that we would be we would have enough reserves um, of cash internally to be able to do it ourselves. And just organically expand. Okay, so this brings me to the, well, second to the last segment of the show, which is how you've gone about growing the business. Before we talk about growing the business, I would like to know more about the size of the market. So you operate in North America, the US and Canada. What's the size of, obviously, um, electric bikes are a segment of the market and people who do not use electric bikes probably can be educated to the advantages of using electric bikes. And also, I, th I suppose, they're, um, as you alluded to earlier, the, the people who um, drive cars or are not very happy with the idea of driving cars who share cars and are looking for a viable alternative. So from your mm -hmm. research and development, from your research, sorry, and from your market research, what, what's the size, potential size of the market operating right now? It's, it's a good question. Now, in the US itself, uh, the market is still fairly small. I would say around the total for last year, the total market for electric bikes was likely about maybe half a billion dollars. Mm. Uh, however, there is a few things that we're counting on, essentially. So first of all, we're uh, counting on the fact that right now, U.S. is about five to seven years behind its European counterparts. So in Europe, electric bikes are much more popular, much uh, more widely accepted and more common. And the market there is significantly more, significantly bigger. Even there, the European market is a tiny section of the overall market globally where it, let's say in china and the rest of asia there are over a hundred million electric bikes sold every single year and it's it's mind-blowing because if you ask a typical person let's say in the states most people won't really know what an electric bike is yet so it's almost the most popular electric vehicle in the world that nobody really talks about yet. So, 
you know, for us, we think that we can grow the company over the next five years to be a 50 to 70 million dollars a year company in the U.S. and Canada alone. Which, which is about 10, you know, 10, 10%, um, 10, 20% of market share given market share being mm-hmm. half, half a billion, which is, which is realistic. Mm-hmm. And then there's also opportunity with um, education. I, I think educating, you know, um, the market and actually creating a market from, from zero, if that makes sense. It does. And, you know, the, the, the thing about electric bikes, uh, personally, is I think that there are a number of trends that are colliding at the same time in, in North America right now. It's the you know b- better awareness and acceptance of electric transportation. It's more focused on health and uh, you know leading an active lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's urbanization as well. You know, uh, more and more people are coming back into the cities from the suburbs. So the distances that people have to travel become smaller, while at the same time owning a car and driving a car is becoming a bigger pain. Uh, so all of these things put together just create an excellent climate for this particular product. And I suppose there's also the Tesla effect, you know. It's, yep. Um, which is which is quite interesting. Okay. Um. So tracking back to the last five years you've been in business, what would you attribute? What channels or um what yeah what, what markets and channels would you or channel, what marketing channel would you attribute to be the biggest source of growth for eBetter? So I would say that one of the things that was a breakthrough from us in the early years was something that we called the ambassador program. Now, fundamentally, we had one big problem that we needed to resolve in order to be successful at selling uh, electric bikes direct to consumer. Most customers, before they buy an expensive product like this, they have two questions. The first question is, where can I go to test ride this product? And the second question is, where can I go if I have a problem with this product down the line? So in order to address the first question about the test ride, because we did not have traditional dealers uh, and bike shops that other brands worked with, we started something called the Ambassador Program, which is are essentially our existing Evelo customers who buy a bike, they really like it, and they sign up to be an ambassador. So whenever we have a potential customer in their area, we're able to connect the ambassador and the potential customer for a test ride okay. and a Q&A. Yep. And it works great because from the ambassador's perspective, well, there, there is a financial incentive. They make a commission every time the test ride leads to a sale. But even more so, I think that psychologically, people that own things like this, you know, whether you own a Tesla or an electric bike, you're typically going to be an enthusiast and you're going to be happy to share your experience with other people. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what we're finding. A lot of ambassadors would do this even if there was no financial incentive involved. Absolutely, absolutely. Everybody I know that has a Tesla have t- shown me, you know, the, the dashboard, just taking me on a yeah. tour. <laughs> abs- abs- absolutely, absolutely. The same um, would, would be, uh, be quite, it's quite novel, you know, a, a product and very, very useful. 
uh, yeah. functionality. So, uh, that, so that is clever. Mm. So in, in our line and in our experience over the last few years, uh, we're, we're big proponents of e-commerce and the direct-to-consumer because it allows us to be more efficient. It allows us to offer better price to the end user without sacrificing quality uh, because we cut out um, essentially, say, a middleman that would typically add an extra 35 to 40 percent to okay. the price. Okay, let's scratch the surface a little bit. You know, in order to get people to even want to test and uh, or to, 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 to test drive, you know, um, or, or um, or have you know problems or questions you know with regards to to getting a bike, they need to be aware of Evelo. Um, so what what primary channels um, have sort of led them to the awareness to the point where you lead them on to ambassadors? Sure. So I would say that the three key components for us are search marketing, email marketing, and content. So. Search marketing, both in terms of pay-per-click advertising and organic optimization, has been very important to us because people do their research online. That's uh, just how it is. So we do want to be able to capture that traffic and bring it to our site. At the same time, that's only half of the battle because the, the next step, the next step for us has always been education in a sense that we try never to have an aggressive sales tactics um, both on our website and the inter and with the interactions that we have with the customers. We never want to push anybody towards anything just to make a quick buck. Our philosophy has always been let's educate people and help them make the right decision for themselves. So, to do that, for example, we, we produce and write a lot of content, uh, anything from like a 20,000-word electric bike buyer's guide to articles that basically break down trans transparent pricing. And they explain when you spend $2,000 on a bike, where does every dollar go? And things like this, they really help us, again, to make our visitors comfortable with us mm -hmm. and also capture new potential visitors as well who are doing their research. Okay, so does all of this content sit on your website or do you have a distribution? Um, do, you, do you distribute it across the web to, to major platforms? Uh, we do about 90% of it is on our site and about 10% we do guest posting and things of that nature. Okay, so so it's really inbound. Okay, so when you create a um, a twenty thousand buyers guide to to buying electric electric bikes, um, do you just um, promote it organically on search, or would you also buy you know um, traffic, you know, search traffic to to to, to, to just drive awareness you know, to, to to that um, guide? Uh, it's a, it's going to be a little bit of both. Um, I would say that two thirds of it is really done to educate our own visitors, the ones that already land on our website. But when you write good content, uh, the side effect is that it starts to pop up on search on its own as well. So without us having to buy, let's say, pay-per-click ads. So the end result is we're able to both educate the traffic that we paid for uh, and the visitors that uh, came to us through PPC, as well as attract 
completely new ones that otherwise would not have found this. That, 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 sounds, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. Okay, and then, um, so how do you lead people who've, um, say, say I was just researching on electric bikes and um, I arrived on Iverto and I arrived on um, your um, on your guide, on a, on a guide to electric bikes. How do you lead me down the funnel? Because um, it's one thing reading content, you know, on a website and another, you know, um, buying from that same website. So typically, uh, when let, let's say you ca- you come across our guide, uh, you usually have an option of downloading, let's say, a PDF version um, by giving us your email address. Once you give us your email address, we'll typically check in with you uh, every couple of weeks. Uh, you know, provide you additional useful information that may be helpful to you, and really try to stay in touch with you so that you know as a potential prospect that if you ever have any questions about our electric bikes or anybody else's electric bikes, that we are here for you seven days a week. And we make it very easy for people to reach out, to ask questions, and tend to get a lot of leads from there. Okay, that makes sense. And that connects the search, the content, and the email because the email is your communication exactly. um, vehicle your channel, really. Okay, so what's your view on social? I, I don't seem to hear anything about social. It's, it's a good question. So generally speaking, social is has its place. Uh, and for many companies, it works great. From our perspective, uh, we have not been able to really get a strong financial return on investment on so unpaid social media marketing. And it's, maybe it's because our product is just a little bit too pricey, uh, or maybe because the really the purpose of social media marketing is not to get actual sales, but rather to foster conversations improve brand awareness, things of that sort. So again, we'll typically always encourage people to post about their experience with eVelo on Facebook and Twitter, share pictures, and it probably, it it definitely actually has an indirect effect because other people become more comfortable with our brand when they see other users write about it. Mm -hmm. But I can't say that we've really got a lot in terms of financial return through social. Okay, that makes sense. Um, Just on your Facebook um, page and um, it's 4.5 review um, rating on on the Facebook page and there are lots of people posting to the the page. Okay, Mm -hmm. um, how do you, finally, I just want to wrap up by asking you, you know, how you intend to continuously innovate, you know, as, as a company going forward, you know, as, as. Sure. So I would say that there is several directions that we will be exploring into in the future. So uh, the first one, which is again, why we raised the funds is to continue to do product development and add several new products every single year to our product line in order to be able to appeal to, to, a, to a bigger audience. Mm-hmm. But that's part of it. Uh, the second thing is it Bring, brings us back to the very beginning of the conversation when I mentioned that 50% of our success uh, and what makes us special is our just approach to distribution and approach to business. Um, so, for example, one of the things that we're exploring is 
a fundamentally new way of buying and owning an electric bike where instead of potentially buying a $3,000 bike, you can just lease it for, let's say, $99 a month and you will pay for it. You will receive annual tune-ups, will replace the battery every two years if needed, and when you no longer need it, you can return the bike and stop paying the monthly payments. So things like that can help bring uh, a better, a higher level of mass adoption. I, I, I can see that working in, you know, in a city, say for instance, I was, I just decided to live in New York for about six months or three months, you know, um, that would work really well if I could, you know, hire or rent, you know, a, a bike directly from yourselves. Um, and just have the, the, be rest assured that I don't need to sell it, you know, one, and I just, you know, use it, a brand new bike, you know, from, from yourselves um, on a monthly basis and then return it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, the other thing that we see a lot of interesting, interesting opportunities in are kind of the intersection of online and offline world. So, you know, right now, why do people typically, let's say, go to a bike shop and buy a bike there? Well, they'll typically get it because they want it to be fully assembled and they want to talk to somebody. Uh, but what if, for example, um, when a customer purchases a bike directly from us, they could have multiple options where they can get it uh, either nearly fully assembled directly at their door and they kind of finish the assembly themselves or actually have the bike shipped to a local store where it would be fully assembled for them and then delivered directly to their door by the local mechanic okay. uh, for an extra fee. So what happens at the moment um, when um, you ship bikes to, to customers? So right now, uh, the bikes are shipped in what's called 95% assembled state, which basically means that when a customer gets a bike, all they have to do is just three steps. They put on the front wheel, they adjust the handlebars to the level that they like, and they screw in the pedals. Uh, it takes about 20 minutes, and it's very easy to do. Uh, and the vast majority of our customers, you know, they don't have a problem with that. Uh, however, we also recognize a fact that we are potentially losing on a lot of potential customers who just don't want to deal with this. And I get it. You know, they just want a fully assembled bike, period. Uh, so we're constantly exploring ways to make that happen as well. Okay, okay that makes sense. And um, you're just, just for the record, you're always going to be a direct-to-consumer um, business. Well, to be frank, uh, we're pretty adaptable and flexible. Right now, uh, we believe that it's a better way of doing business uh, for our customers, uh, for us as a company. Uh, but that's not to say that things will not change or evolve um, down the line. And we'll, we'll, we'll definitely be open to changing our way of doing things if there is something better available. Interesting. Okay. Right. Um, so this is the final segment of the show, the evergreen, you know, um, section or what I call the lightning round. Um, so mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you a question and if you could use a sentence, maximum two sentences, um, to answer, that'll be brilliant. I'm going to start off with, I'm going to start when you're ready. 
Sure. Okay. So, what are your plans for the future? For now, our plan is to double in size every year moving forward. Fantastic. How do you hire people? Most of our team is actually remote, so we hire them all over the country, all over the world, really. What are your three indispensable tools for managing Evelo? Slack is a very big one since most of our people are remote, as well as Trello, which is a project management tool, mm -hmm. and Clavio, uh, which is an email marketing tool. What's been your best mistake to date? By that, I mean a setback that's given you the biggest feedback. Our biggest, <laughs> our best mistake has probably been, um, I would say, being conserv very, very conservative uh, with how we grow. Uh, as I mentioned in, in during the conversation, uh, we really waited uh, over three years before uh, going out after additional funds. I think that by doing that a little bit earlier, uh, we could have sped up our growth. So the challenge is, again, to know exactly when the right time is. Well, timing, so yeah, timing, timing, timing. The benefits of hindsight, they say. Mm -hmm. uh, right. What one piece of advice can you give to con to to direct to consumer e-tailers keen on two x in and three x in their sales. Well, primarily that is a cliche, but it takes money uh, to make money. In a sense that uh, for us, we do some things right and we do some things wrong, and the things that we do do wrong, they end up costing us. Uh, you know, a significant amount, a significant amount of money. Mm -hmm. So, finding a way to have a little bit of experiments budget is very important to uh, to really figure things out. Okay, right. Um, if you could choose a single book or resource that's made the highest impact on the way you view building a business and growth, which would it be? Uh, I would say. I recently read a book called The Maverick by a guy called Ricardo Semler. Okay. He runs a company in Brazil, which to me, what that book was about was it doesn't really matter what you do as much as it matters how you do it. Mm -hmm. His company runs, um, it's kind of a manufacturing sort of an in industry, which not super exciting, yet Everybody in Brazil wants to work there, and it has a phenomenal reputation, and it's just a beautiful company that he's been able to build. So, highly recommended. Interesting. I will check it out. Okay. Um, I would just like to thank you, immensely thank you, Boris, for spending time sharing so much um, and wishing you the best and best of luck with the Velo. It looks like a brilliant company, disruptive, and hopefully, I'd love to see you guys here in the UK and Europe. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll, 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 we'll do what we can. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, for those of you sticking along, thank you for listening still till now. Thank you for sticking. Um, and I really hope you found Boris's insights on building a direct to consumer business, product business, actually inspiring. And you're able to pick up, even if it's just one tactic, one takeaway, which you could apply in your own online retail business, just um, take just that one thing, two things, and apply it and take action in your, you know, um, in your, in your online sales, in, in your online business to, to just move the needle. Um, to download the show notes and 
the full transcript, just head over to 2xecommerce.com. Until the next show, guys, do have a fantastic one. Bye-bye for now. Thanks for listening to this episode of 2X Ecommerce. To help you get more actionable insights and e-commerce growth hacks that will help you 2X your online retail business, hop over to 2xecommerce.com. It's a blog dedicated to e-commerce and multi-channel marketing run by the show's host, Kunle Campbell. 2xecommerce.com is packed full of articles and guides to help increase traffic to your store, increase repeat purchases, and average order value. Thanks for listening. Visit 2xecommerce.com.